This is Tom Shrewsbury with Reflections for the Covenant Network. Driving down the streets in a different city recently, I couldn't help but notice the large number of churches named after many of our great saints, names with which we're all familiar, and it got my mind thinking about these saints, their lives, their accomplishments for the church, for many, the sacrifices they made for the faith. And then I had a thought, and that was, what was their life really like? How did they spend their days, their quiet times? Why, why are they really special? For many of us, I believe, we have only a smattering of the real content of their lives. Some one thing special they did or accomplished, or perhaps one or two events that were significant that we might visualize when we hear their names. Well, here, here's one example. If I would mention St. Joan of Arc, what mental picture would immediately come into your mind? Well, for me, I think it would be, well, probably two images. First, of course, would be St. Joan being burned at the stake, and the second would probably be the often-seen portrait or holy card picture of Joan dressed in battle gear, standing straight, holding her sword upright as a symbol of strength and determination, both probably pretty accurate in describing her early years. But, you know, we'd really be missing the mark of how wonderful and blessed was the life of this amazing girl. And that goes for many other saints, too. The trouble is, we often focus on just one aspect, one event, one stitch in the fabric of their lives, when really, I think their lives are a little bit like a great painting. When we look at a Rembrandt or a Van Gogh, for example, or, or whomever, we look at the entire painting, not just one stroke of the brush or one color accent. No, their masterpieces are comprised of many strokes of colors and accents, and if we study them very closely, we see that it is the sum total of all those little dabs of the brush that creates the priceless work of art. Well, the same thing probably holds true with the lives of the saints. We need to see all the little bits and pieces that are blended together with God's master brush strokes to create a saint from the canvas of their lives, and we need to know more about them. It sort of boils down to this, too. If our lives are like blank canvases, how will the finished painting look? Well, that's where the saints come in to show us how, and maybe Joan of Arc might be a good starting place in showing us how we should live. And to do this, well, we have to go back in history to another time and another place where daily lives, while they were different than ours, they too had their everyday problems and frustrations just as you and I face. Hardly a day passes that we don't read about the casualties from this conflict, that battle, or another uprising somewhere with disastrous results. Well, Joan's time was much the same, and perhaps a bit more frustrating because in her day, France was a major battlefield in the Hundred Years' War. 
Record-keeping was somewhat spotty then, but it appears that she was likely born on the 6th of January in 1412, and that lengthy war had actually been going on about 75 years between the French and the English. Without going into great detail about the cause of that lengthy war, suffice it to say that some of England's kings were born of French princes, and the battles raged as to whom would rule which country, and the dissension was fierce and bloody. Maybe also, too, the Duke of Burgundy was murdered by supporters of the Duke of Orleans, and to revenge his murder, the people of Burgundy became allied with the English, with the resulting civil war backed by the King of England. That's oversimplified, but you get the picture. In short, it was a mess. So that brings us up to the birth of Joan in 1412. The fierceness and brutality of the Burgundians and English was brought home to her village at an early age, and she was to learn the real meaning of the word fear. The English had marched across much of France and controlled the road to Reims. Now, this was significant because Reims was the traditional site at that time where the kings were crowned, and Charles VII had never been able to be officially crowned because Reims was occupied territory. Joan was the youngest of five children, Her father, Jacques d'Arc, was a farmer who tilled perhaps about 50 acres. His assets were few, but he was hard-working, and his family was content with what little they had. As Joan was growing up, she developed many talents, but had been described as a very serious child, who was not only skilled in sewing and needlework, but also tended to the sheep in the pastures when that was necessary. But with all her talents and skills, Joan never learned to read or write. And that's hard to believe in today's world. Her early religious training was primarily through the efforts of her mother, who taught her the Hail Mary, the Our Father, and the Creed, as well as the basics of her faith, which apparently had a profound effect on Joan, because she enjoyed and sought out time to spend in church absorbed in prayer. While she would enjoy the company of other youngsters, she was considered a very serious young girl, quite aloof from the usual frivolity of children her age, but still cheerful and considerate. Her life would change forever when she was 12 or 13. History isn't too clear on that exact date. She had joined with other children from the village and had been playing in the fields gathering flowers when someone told her that her mother needed her. Always obedient, Joan ran home telling her mother that she had gotten her message and inquired what was needed. Her mother must have looked at her strangely and said that she didn't need her and hadn't called her. Well, happily, Joan went back outside near the garden and what was to happen next would change her life forever. She was to receive the first of many special visits of heavenly origin. 
Standing in the garden, Joan was startled by a dazzling bright light, even brighter than the sun shining before her. She was suddenly terrified because she had never seen anything like this, even from the brightness. Then a voice spoke to her of the faith and how it must be observed and protected. The voice was that of someone speaking quite close to her, and later she was to discern that the voice was that of St. Michael, the archangel, who was later accompanied by other angels, including St. Margaret and St. Catherine. The visions continued, but Joan kept these happenings to herself, and gradually her mission was revealed to her. Unschooled in the ways of the world, as well as all the causes and solutions of what was to be known as the Hundred Years' War, Joan's mission seemed monumental, especially to a young woman who could neither read nor write. She was told that the rightful king of France had been kept away from the throne, and it would be her assignment to rescue him and see that he was officially crowned king in the city of Reims. She would, over the next few years, receive more visitors and instructions from her voices, which she continued to hear with perfect clarity. She was reluctant to speak of her voices, but her friends and playmates noticed a rapid change in her behavior. She became more quiet, and instead of playing as she had in the past, she preferred to spend more and more time in church praying. It was at this time that she promised her virginity to God. The voices continued as saints and holy people became her frequent companions, providing her with direction and counsel. What was not only an improbable request, but also an obviously impossible objective, was made even clearer to this innocent young farm girl. She was reminded that the rightful king of France was being wrongfully kept away from the throne and told her that her assignment would be to have him crowned in the city of Reims. Wow! Can you imagine how this affected Joan, a simple farm girl? How would we have reacted to this? Well, her heavenly visitors had become, as her close friends, who were very real to her. Years later, she would recount at her trial, I saw them with the eyes of my body as plainly as I see you now. And when they went away, I would cry, for... I wanted them to take me to paradise. Her secret, so to speak, was continued for possibly as long as three years as she was being prepared for God's mission. And then her date with destiny began. The voices were now insistent in urging her to travel to a nearby town where Charles Seventh was bogged down in his command. Finally, the following month, Joan journeyed to the town where she presented herself to the general's aide, advising him that she had been sent on a divine mission to save the king and have him crowned at Reims. Well, you could imagine the response she received. 
The general's aide was a rude and brusque individual who not only refused her request to see the king, but also told her cousin, who had accompanied her, to take her back to her father for a good horse-whipping. As the days passed after Joan's fruitless visit, Charles' situation became even more perilous, with a complete defeat by the British not only a possibility, but a definite probability. But back home, Joan's voices were becoming even more insistent, ordering her back to see the king. Joan, as young as she was, must have been a realist, because she told her voices, I am a poor girl, I do not know how to ride or fight. But the voices spoke out again, insisting, it is God who commands it. Well, Joan must have answered, then I will go, because she traveled to the king's encampment, where she was again met by his arrogant aide, who was somewhat softened by her sincere gentleness, but he saw no value in wasting the king's time with a visit from a simple farm girl who wanted to help, so again she was refused with the suggestion she should again return home. To reinforce the fact that she was being sent by heavenly forces. She announced that the king's army had just that day suffered a great defeat by the British at the Battle of Herring. And no, she would not return home. She couldn't face the voices in failure. And because of her modesty and being a young girl among all those soldiers, she donned the clothes of a man to protect her purity as she spent several days at the camp. She would continually wear the clothes of a man. Then word was received by special messenger for the king. The army had been badly beaten several days before at the Battle of Herring, just as Joan had announced earlier. The news had a decided effect on the king's aide, since Joan had told him of the defeat days before the messenger had been able to arrive with the news of the battle. The aide was relenting. Perhaps this young girl should see the king. Both the king's aide and Charles himself felt that she needed to be tested. So the king changed clothes from his royal robes to that of a commoner, and instead of sitting on a royal throne when Joan was ushered into his presence, he made himself almost invisible by mingling in the crowd at his court. Joan entered the room and went directly to the king, picking him out of his disguise in a room filled with people. She communicated to him a secret from the voices, which has never been revealed, but believed to have been information proving information of his royal birth and his right to be king of France. There were still lingering questions concerning what they should do with Joan. She was questioned in depth by a group of learned bishops and doctors to determine her sanity. Joan's answers to the many difficult questions posed to her by the committee made a favorable impression on them all. Everything else had failed in their battles. Well, why not give her a try? Following the examinations, Joan prepared for her first military campaign. 
The king offered her a sword as a royal gift, but she requested that they search for an ancient sword believed to be buried behind the chapel of a nearby church. Her voices had told her where the sword would be discovered, and the sword was uncovered exactly where they had said it would be. To accompany the sword on her battles, Joan was fitted with a white suit of armor and a standard or flag made with the words Jesus and Maria, with the representation of God the Father surrounded by kneeling angels offering a fleur-de-lis. A manuscript written from Lyon, France, on April the 22nd in 1429 is still preserved to this day, attesting to the fact that Joan claimed that she would save Orleans. Orleans had been under siege for about five months before Joan arrived, and during that period only one major assault had been attempted on the city, and that had been a great disaster. Jean de Orleans, or in our vernacular, John of Orleans, a major leader at that time, resisted Joan's participation and kept her away from much of the strategic planning. A war council was held, and Joan was not invited, but managed to gain entrance and challenge John of Orleans directly. Well, because of the previous losses, John of Orleans and many of the military leaders were opposed to any further attacks on the city at this time, but Joan demanded another attack, and for some possibly unexplained reason, these military veterans finally agreed with her. Think about that for a moment. Doesn't this really border on the supernatural? A young girl causing the top military brass to change their minds. Well, the sight of Joan dressed in white riding at the head of the troops became a great inspiration to both the peasants and the military alike. Battles were now being won, and the great prize of Reims was just ahead. Joan pushed even harder because her voices had told her that she had just one year left. Well, as our friend Paul Harvey would say, you know the rest of the story. Reams fell to Joan's army. Even though she was wounded in the battle, she stood next to Charles as he was crowned king at Reams, just as she had predicted. She was now also referred to as the Maid of Orleans, and John of Orleans had become one of her staunchest supporters. At the coronation, she carried her banner and stood next to the king, because she said, as it shared in the toil, it was just that it share in the victory. The teenage girl had successfully carried out the orders of her voices and wished now to return home where she would be able to live in anonymity, but this was not to happen. She was forced to remain in the army, and a truce was later signed by the Duke of Burgundy. Jealousies were now abounding in the royal courts, and many were wanting to claim the prestige of leading the forces to victory. Many wanted the accolades going to Joan for themselves, and conspired against her, even to the point of later turning her over to the British in exchange for a huge sum of money. 
The weakness of the king and his supporters provided no assistance to this maid of Orleans, who, by her action and bravery and following the direction of her voices, had achieved so many great victories. And so she was handed over to the British, whose great anger was not just that she had beaten them in battle, but by the magnitude of her victories and the magnitude of their humiliation. We have to remember that many of these were high-ranking military men with years of battle experience being defeated by the skill of a teenage girl leading inferior forces and placing their own prestige at risk and ridicule. So the logical approach would be to discredit Joan in any way possible. She was imprisoned, and though she wished to be kept in some type of church-sanctioned facility where she could again safely wear women's clothing, where her virtue would not be in jeopardy, she was confined to a secular prison where, because of modesty, she would continue to wear men's clothes. At first she was imprisoned in an iron cage with chains around her hands, her neck, and her feet and much of the trial transcripts remain, and if we were to examine them today, we would see, at least by our standards, that the results would be in her favor. She was quizzed in great detail about her visions and the voices, and her answers were given with simple piety, good humor, and responding to the harsh words directed at her, she answered with kindness, charity, and a certain sense of holiness and humility. Her whole demeanor and response to the shameful questioning and accusations started winning more and more people to sympathize with her, so much so, in fact, that the remainder of the trial was held in the prison with few observers. Many of those voiced the opinion that her voices were diabolical and that their statements to her should be repudiated. Well, naturally, she refused. During the trial that followed, the opposition tried to confuse her and twist many of her statements so that they could be misinterpreted and used against her. For example, one of the most famous exchanges was when she was pointedly asked if she knew that she was in the grace of God. Now, if she would have answered, yes, or I am, she could have been declared a heretic, because if you studied the church's teachings very carefully, you would see that no one can actually state with certainty that they are in the grace of God. And possibly more importantly, if she answered no, she would have been acknowledging her own guilt. That was a tricky question. I personally believe her voices gave her the answer. Her answer was exact. She said, If I am not in God's grace, may God put me there. And if I am, may God keep me there. The English were quoted as saying, We will have her yet. And they used another tactic as a trap. She was condemned for wearing a man's clothes. She wore men's clothing, as we said, as a protection for her virtue, and eventually she was sexually assaulted while in prison. On the 29th day of May, the court ruled that she be treated as a heretic, and being found guilty, 
she would be burned at the stake the following day. After confession and receiving communion, Joan's date with immortality was at hand. On the 30th of May, Joan, now wearing a long robe, was taken by a cart to the cemetery of a nearby church where a large crowd were gathering along with many soldiers. Her calm and serene demeanor had a lasting effect on those present. She was secured to a stake. She asked two of the priests present to hold a crucifix in front of her. A man in the crowd placed two sticks together, forming a cross, which he gave to her, and it was placed in the front of her dress. The pyre on which she stood was ignited, and as her body was consumed by flames, she kept repeating over and over again the name of Jesus, as her pure soul was surely carried to the throne of God by the angels whose voices had given her what God had asked of her. The fire was reset twice to make certain there was nothing left of the Maid of Orleans, that her ashes were cast into the Seine to avoid any relics that might be taken. She was just 19 years old. Joan's trial was reopened later by Pope Calixtus III in 1452 to determine the validity of her trial and the justification of its findings. In June of 1456, after examining testimony from 115 witnesses, Joan was officially declared a martyr. She was beatified by Pope Pius X in April of 1909 and canonized as saint by Pope Benedict XV on the 16th of May in 1920. As we look back at the fabric of her life, we see this teenage girl who gave up home and comfort listening to the will of God through his very special messengers. From the moment she first heard the voices from heaven, she became his obedient servant, overcoming her ignorance, lack of education, and inability to read or write, and yet, in spite of suffering ridicule, imprisonment, and martyrdom, she changed the face of Europe forever. And as usual, time has only allowed us to just touch on a part of the life of this amazing saint who took the time to listen. Maybe we all need to listen a little more and take a lesson from this young woman of just 19 years whose life is a beautiful masterpiece of heroic virtue who listened to the will of God. This is Tom Shrewsbury with Reflections for the Covenant Network.